Our God is able. Good morning. First things first, I want to remind you on the front of the bulletin this morning, there's a reminder that we are asking you, the people that make up Grace Community Church, to prayerfully and uh, consider how God would have you refer to us, someone that you believe would uh, be a wise and good leader at Grace Community Church. Uh, We need three deacons and one or two elders, so it's important that you give us uh, all of the people that God puts on your heart. And there are cards that are color-coded, and uh, you'll find them out in the uh, lobby, the foyer. Speak a little French this morning, some culture. And uh, if you'll just read those carefully and fill them out, we handle them very carefully. There's a box out in the foyer that will help, um, where you can place them, and they will get to the nominating committee uh, that is, will be in session, and, and, and uh, you'll see that process played out at our annual meeting in January. Uh, a moment of personal thanks. I want to thank you all on behalf of Shelley and uh, for me for all of your kindness and goodness, your thoughtfulness, your prayers, uh, your offers of help. Uh, we're, we're very, very grateful. Um, and it's great to be here. I, I, I thought I might have a little trouble remembering how to speak. It's been, uh, it's been a little bit of time. Um, years ago, There was a show, it didn't seem like it was that long ago. It was called The A-Team. It was a really stupid show (laughs) that I didn't watch unless uh, I was really in dire boredom. But uh, they had a, the guy who was the head of the A-Team, he went by the name of Hannibal. And he would say all the time, I love it when a plan comes together. Remember that, some of you? But, you know, we know that sentiment, whether we say it that way or not, we love it when a plan comes together. I think we all do. Seven weeks ago, on July 21st, seven weeks ago today, on July 21st, I said, come next week for two or three Uh, for parts two or three of this section of James. James chapter four, verse 11, all the way through chapter five or six. And I said, it's one big, you know, kind of continuous theme and thought. And so to handle it, I'm going to handle it in three parts. Here's part one. And next week, I'm going to do part two. And next week, I'm going to do part three. And I said, come back next week and... uh, Because parts two and three are going to be even better than part one. Some of you may remember that. Well, God has a sense of humor, doesn't he? Because uh, for seven weeks, I've been stuck on chapter four, verses 13 through 17, which we're going to look at today. Seven 
weeks. That's a holy number of weeks. <laughs> That's a perfect number of weeks. It wasn't punishment. It was God's intensive course in depending on him and his will. And that's really what the thrust of this, this whole passage is about from chapter 4 through chapter 5, verse 6. Shelley, the day following, that is on July 22nd, July 22nd, she said, I feel like my life is on hold and has been for the last month. I can't make plans. Now, she didn't stop right there. But see, when I'm around, I make notes. So I immediately jotted that down and sent it to myself because I wanted to remember that. I thought, that is all of us. We like to have a sense of our, how our life's going to fall out, how it's going to proceed, how we're going to navigate it. In, in fact, we're told, I'm the captain of my ship, so get navigating. But all of a sudden, when you don't feel like you can navigate, because circumstances have made that impossible, then you find yourself in what we call limbo, you know, that indeterminate kind of time where you don't know what's going on. You're kind of spinning in confusion. Well, seven weeks later, I love it when a plan comes together. <laughs> you know, we say love it because... Uh, we know life doesn't go according to plan. So when it does come together, it's like, oh, very cool. And we love it when a plan comes together because plans are the desire of our hearts. Plans come out of the heart. In fact, in Proverbs chapter 25, it says, uh, the counsel of a person is deep water. And the word for counsel can also mean plan. Our plans come out of the counsel of our hearts. They reflect the deep desires, directions, and destinations that we have for our lives. Plans are very important. So when they come together, I love it. You love it. We love it. Technically, a plan, technically, a plan is a strategy and the tactics to achieve a goal that we map logistically to manage resources and complications. And among our resources, it's not only money and maybe friends, but even time. That was my technical definition of a plan. The basic definition of a plan is it's a decision about what you're going to do that you believe is in your best interest. That's by and large. That's commonly what a plan is. It's what I'm going to do 
in my own best interests. And commonly, plans turn out to just be nothing more than fuzzy wishes. What are you going to be when you grow up? I can remember being asked that when I was like maybe just a little above my father's knee and I'd be looking up at somebody. Well, I can tell you what my, my answer was when I was a child. In grade school. And in high school. And in my first year of college. I'm going to be an artist when I grow up. And that's what I pursued in grade school. People got me gifts. In the back of the magazines, you could apply to go to art school and win a scholarship. And I filled it out and asked my mom if she'd send it in. Hmm. Let's hold off on that just a little bit. But we actually did call to find out. When they offered art classes in junior high, I took art classes. When they offered art classes in high school, I took art classes. I remember when I was working my, one of my first jobs. My first one was at Kentucky Fried Chicken. And the second one was at Angelo's Market. And I had one in which I worked at a plumbing shop. For a while, I entertained becoming a plumber. They make good money. It's easier to become a plumber than their rival, a doctor. But I was a plumber's helper. And I remember working with a friend. He was a year ahead of me in high school. And we were working out in the yard, and we would go out on the jobs. We'd take these big trucks full of equipment and different things. We'd help the plumbers. We'd work alongside them. But we were the heavy lifters. We were the ditch diggers. We were, you know, we carried out the prefab stuff, the fiberglass bathtubs. We lifted the heavy stuff. And we were proud of it. Our hands. Somebody took, shook my hand the other day and said, you've got a soft hand. What? Just <laughs> fighting words. Because back when I was at that plumbing shop, Brad and I, we used to compare our hands to see whose hands were the roughest and the toughest and the most callous. And one day I, I boasted to Brad. I said, Brad, you'll never. I'd rather dig ditches. I want to work out of doors. You'll never catch me behind a desk. Yeah, just let that sink in a moment. Well, God called me into the ministry, and I was in the middle of taking art classes. In fact, a nationally known painter said, it's time for you to get out on your own and start showing your work. Can you believe that? But I had already made the decision in my heart that I was going to devote my life to following the Lord. In ministry. Because really I devoted my life to following the Lord before that. So I had to tell my, kind of my mentor. I'm, I'm, I wish I would well that was a thing I always wanted to hear. 
but I'm, I'm going in a different direction. I told him about the Lord and his place in my life and the decision that I'd made. So I decided I was going to enter the intern program. You know, if, if you want to get into that, get some training. And that's where I started. I worked my way through the different uh, kind of hoops that I needed to get through. And I finally sat before the pastor of the church. His name was Bill Yeager. And he was like, well, he was like, I was like Dorothy before the Wizard of Oz. And he said, well, uh, I see you're working in youth ministry. Is that where you see yourself going? I said, yeah, I want to be a youth. I want to be a youth pastor. That's where I feel comfortable. That's where I've got things to give. I want to be a youth pastor. He said, I, I think you're supposed to be a preacher. And I went, <laughs> I laughed. What? No way. Sorry, no disrespect, but I can't ever imagine that. as I stand here telling you about it. It's important to plan, but God has higher plans. He has better plans. And he even has bigger plans for you than you can imagine. I used to... Um, so I thought I was going to be a preacher, and uh, I did get a call to South San Francisco, and we left everything to go there where we basically had nothing. We were there for 10 years. Um, Shelley's finally coming around to it being some of the good years in our life. I learned so much. Um, it was really good for our marriage, and we grew a great deal. But um, I, I'm convinced that the 10 years there, when I went from age 30 to age 40, were years preparing me for coming to Grace, which next year will be 20 years, 2 times 10. <clears throat> I went on and got my PhD while I was there. I never thought I'd get to do that. In fact, when I left to go there, I was saying goodbye in my heart and my mind that God would ever allow me to finish the PhD because I was teaching for Fresno Pacific College. And that's what, when I became a part of their faculty, they said, you've got to get your, they called it a terminal degree. You need to get, you know, a doctorate and preferably an academic doctorate. So I said goodbye to that. And then when we left there, I didn't know where I was going. And I thought I was going to fall through the cracks. It was the scariest time of my life. At one time I was talking to God on the way back. Because through a circuitous time of deep prayer and searching and struggling with God about whether it was time for me to go on to something else because I, really I felt like I had taken the church as far as I could take it and that God wanted me to step away and I was struggling with that because I loved that church. 
We had wonderful friendships and great things were happening. Anyway, I did step away and, and when I did, I didn't have anything to go to. And after we moved, we moved back to Modesto. Shelley was supporting me as I wrote my dissertation. And two, and two weeks, not even a full two weeks after that, guess I got a call from a seminary, a graduate school, and they asked me to, to build a campus, start a campus up in Sacramento, California. Anyway, I went on to become a professor and a campus dean, dean and an academic dean. And when I would give an orientation to the students at the beginning of the year, I would tell them, listen, take every, everything in life seriously. Give it your best. The, you're, you're going to be in classes that you don't think you need, that you don't think are important to you. But I'm urging you to take them as very important, that they're part of what God wants to expose you to and he wants you to learn about because God is going to take you places you never imagined. To be a person you never imagined you could be, even on your best day. That's the kind of God that we follow. That's the kind of God we serve. And James agrees. Let's read James 4, 13 through 17. And I want to show you something in this passage. Come now, you who say, tomorrow, today or tomorrow, we will go into such and such a town or city and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you, and I really want you to see that word you, in the way this translation positions it, it's not quite as bold as it is uh, in the Greek language. So, you know, he begins, he says, uh, come now, you who say, and then in verse 14, you do not know what tomorrow will bring. You do not know what life is. For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or do that. And as it is, he says, you boast in your arrogance, your pride. You know, you crow in your pride. All such boasting is evil. And you should think of the word harmful, because evil is harmful. Sometimes we think it's over there. Not me. No, but when we do certain things, we can do things that are harmful to us as well as others. And this word is a word that carries the notion, it's translated evil, but it really has the notion of harmful. And evil is harmful, right? but I want you to understand that tone. Verse 17, so, whoever, not just you that I'm particularly talking to, but whoever knows the right thing to do it and fails to do it, 
For that person, for Mr. or Mrs. whoever, it's sin. Now, when we begin at verse 13, this is a common claim. I hear this all the time. I can, I can say I've said it myself. I've thought it myself. I'm going to do this. I'm going to do that today, tomorrow. And we're going to spend some time there. And then you notice he's talking to merchants. He's talking to people who travel to sell things, you know, to make a profit. So uh, we'll do business and we'll make a profit. We're going to make our plans fulfilling. We're going to make our plans pay off. Our plans are going to make us happy. Our plans are going to add more to our life than we have now. Our plans are going to satisfy us. That's fundamentally what he's talking about. And that is why we love it when a plan comes together. We're going to make a profit of some kind or another. Over the years, I've studied and read a lot about leadership, administration, uh, all kinds of things, and even goal setting. Every goal setting book ever says this. And maybe not exactly these words, but all of them have this message Those who fail, fail to plan. Ergo, plan for success, right? If uh, success, you want success? Oh, come on. Don't we all? However you define success, if you want success, plan. Plan. And James agrees. But don't just plan for profit. That is prideful. If you just plan for profit, it's all about you. It's all about me. And I confess to you here and now, I have planned that way in life. Whether I'm defining my planning technically or very simply. Planning without God, without God, is about personal profit. That has to be clear. That's what he is saying. He says you plan without God because all your plans, all the power of your plans, all the energy of your plans, all the heart of your plans goes into profit. Profit for yourself. And that's where God is left out. Because his plans are not always about what we and our world considers profit. These guys give God a tip. See, they make their profit. Verse 13, they make their profit. But God is not in the picture, so they throw him a tip. Here you go. That's just in case you got out of our way or helped us a little bit. It's kind of a little bit of a payoff. 
You know, I got that message when I first became a believer as a freshman in college. That same pastor, Bill Yeager, he'd say, we only give God our first and best. We don't do garage sales to support God or to support his missionaries. We don't give God our leftovers or our hand-me-downs or the things that we don't want. We give him our first and our best. And boy, that stuck with me as a young man. And you know what? I guess that's why I'm talking to you now. Because even though I don't always give God my my first and best, It's always the standard. It's the gold standard of living. And it's the way I truly want to live my life. And I think it's the way you do too. There's an inner witness of the Spirit to this kind of truth. It says, ding! That's right. Can I call anyone God that I only give my hand-me-downs? My second-hand stuff? My leftovers? My spare? My spare? Or do I give him my first and best? That's what James is talking about here. He's talking about giving God our first and best. Tim talked about uh, remembering God or how we forget, Pastor Tim last Sunday, how we forget about God. How somehow he didn't show up on our raiders in our thinking. Well, for the past seven weeks, God's been very plain on my radar. That's the good thing that comes about difficulties and hardships. And facing what James says here is our vulnerability. And although I'm going to talk about this more next, not next week, but in a couple of weeks, make room for God. This is the point, second point we're on. Without room for God, people can be filled with... Oh, wait a second, there. Without God... Room for God. Plans can be filled with self-reliance. And then we'll eventually cover all three of these points. But this is what I'm looking at this morning in the yellow or in the middle. I'll give you these again sometime. But I want you to see what, what James is talking about right here in that middle point, verses 13 through 17. Humility. He says, let's enlarge our sense of humility. Reality. You know, let's get a better grip on reality. I I think it's amazing. Part of it comes with the technology. All the films using generated imagery, uh, computer CGI, GI stuff. And, And so now all the superheroes come to life. All the ear reality, all the ear reality, all the ear reality. Isn't, isn't it somehow kind of strange when, when supposedly we're, we're moving as a nation and as a society and as a world toward atheism, materialistic atheism, which basically says you can't prove God exists. I can't believe what I can't see. Well, that's silly to begin with, but let's just roll with that a second. It's those same people that are filling our minds and their coffers with fantasies 
that are greater and weirder and crazier. I'm not saying I don't like Spider-Man or Superman. If I did that, you wouldn't listen to me at all. But, but really, it's some pretty weird stuff. It's, it's pure entertainment. But don't think that when we spend all our time being entertained on stuff that isn't real, that it doesn't influence our heart, our plans, the way we see the world, what we devote our lives to, what we think is important and what we don't. It is. And James says, where's God in all this? He's being drowned in your own thinking, your own priorities, your own plans. And the third thing, beside a sense of humility, reality, is fidelity. Fidelity. And I'll be looking at those when we return. Humility I have to work at being more lowly. than anyone else. It's uh, hard for Shelley and me to see attention given to us because quite honestly, we know we're just like you. You matter just as much as we do in a lot of ways, in most, most important ways. So it's hard, for, uh, it's hard for me to hear Corey pray for Shelley, although I, I please pray for Shelley. Yeah, I, I don't want anything... But there's something, I'm, this isn't just a humble brag. This is a piece of real theological meat. If I'm going to be more like Christ, I have to be more about him. And I have to disappear. Or like John the Baptist said with reference to Jesus, he must increase, I must decrease. And that's... That's how you actually become more Christ-like. You see how important this is. This remembering in our busy, distracted, distracted, distracted lives. If we don't remember Him, if we don't care about what He cares about, See, James says, in, instead of that, I want you to substitute something else, something better. Instead of, I'm going to go today or tomorrow and do this and that, and we're going to do business, and I'm going to make a profit. He says, instead, in the place of that, he, he says, start with, if God wills. And when we think of God's will... It, don't think just do's and that, do's and don'ts. Think of what God cares about. What does God care about? What matters to him? Well, first of all, you matter. You're worth a son to him. If you don't believe that, then you don't believe the gospel because Jesus is the gospel. He is the good news. He is the revelation of God. He tells us. 
this God of the Old Testament, that he cares for us. He's fulfilling his covenants in Jesus Christ. And his covenants are all about loving you and you loving him back. He created you to be your loving God and for him to be your loving benefactor. And what he cares about is love and goodness, kindness, gentleness, wholeness. He cares about all the beautiful things in this world. And when you read across the pages of the Old Testament, yeah, you see a lot of stuff that you, ooh, don't know if I feel good about that, but again and again and again and again and again, God is shown to be good. He wants good. If we think there's a heaven and not just a hell, it's because heaven is good. Everything that we think is good has got to be there. That's the God we serve. That's the God who wants our allegiance. And he validated that. He removed all barriers through Jesus, his death, not just his death. That wasn't the end. If that's the end, we, we go home. We go home. You need to face that. If it was just the cross, we go home. It's been a good run. I've learned a lot. I'll probably always be a better person for it. But it's because he rose from the dead that we have new life. New life. New power. We're not just people with an idea. We're people with a power to make a difference. And God has plans for you. But we're not fulfilling those plans because we're not remembering and we're not realizing who it is that we serve and who we belong to and who we can become in him. We're treating the gospel sometimes as though Christ did not rise from the dead. This bread and this cup is what we celebrate because of what I've just said. This bread is his death. This cup is his resurrection because there's no new covenant without it. And this new covenant is built on the resurrection. The resurrection is the most important doctrine. Without the resurrection, nothing else matters because it's not for me or you. So let's take this with all of our hearts, with all of our minds, with all of our souls. Let's remember the Lord. Let's love the Lord. Let's live for the Lord. On the night he was betrayed, he took bread. He blessed and he broke it and he said, this is my body, which is for you.